Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3? We are currently, if you're just joining us, we are currently in the second major section of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, which contain the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, last time in our study, we got as far as the beginning of chapter 3 and the letter to the church of Sardis, the dead church the dead church. Symbolically, the church of Sardis represents the period of church history from the 16th century through the 17th century, a period referred to as the Protestant Reformation period. So let's just start with verse 1 again. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Now here's where we pick it up for tonight, verse 3. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. So we come to the correction portion of this letter. All the letters, most of them, have uh, a correction. And here in to, in to the letter uh, to the church of Sardis, we see it here where the Lord says, first of all, remember. The Greek is keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. Jesus is saying, you have a noble beginning. You have a noble beginning. Keep reminding yourself of how your church got its start. They drifted. They drifted. Remember how you started well, basically. Remember how you started. I mean, you know, connect with your past. Don't live in the, the past. That was a problem they had in Sardis. They were living in the past, constantly remembering the good old days. But nothing was happening today because the church was dead. Hold fast and repent. You know, if Luther was alive today, I think he'd be nailing his 95 theses, his 95 reforms, to uh, the doors of many of the churches that bear his name. Likewise, Calvin and Wesley would be standing in front of the churches that trace their beginnings back to their ministries and would be shouting, repent. When Jesus tells those in the church of Sardis to repent, he has in mind those who were dead in trespasses and sins. Those that needed regeneration, you know, new life in Christ, salvation, not revival. I think this church is beyond revival. There were genuine Christians in Sardis, as we're going to see. But I think for the most part, this church was dead because it was loaded with religious unbelievers, those who were still dead in trespasses and sins. So when he tells them to repent, he's really telling them to get saved, is the idea. And notice the Lord doesn't say, remember what you have received or what you have heard. The Protestant church knows what they have received and heard. They have codified it in creeds and confessions, they have carved it in stone monuments on, and on the edifices of, of many uh, buildings. The problem with a good chunk of the, Protest, uh, of the Protestant church, of Protestantism, isn't liberalism. They're orthodox. It's dead orthodoxy. It's, it's truth without life. In that regard, I think it's safe to say they're right, but they're dead right. Jesus here doesn't say, remember what? He says, remember how you have heard and received. The church isn't lacking information. The church is lacking in life and power. You know, too many believers and leaders in Protestant churches, uh, they have their degrees. They have all the little letters after their names. They have all their little doctrinal ducks in a row. That's not the problem. The problem is there is no life or passion or reality to what they know. They know a lot of right stuff. Some of them are very intelligent men. The problem is there's no life or reality to what they know. Jesus is essentially asking 
how did you receive the life of the Spirit? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? He's, again, he's calling them to look back at their beginning. Not to live in the past, but connect with the past, okay? You know, God did this many times with Israel. In fact, he gave them memorials that uh, at certain points of the year would draw them back to their past, something God had done. It's good to look back at the past. It's bad to live in the past. That's not what God wants. And God's asking this church, you know, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did your church start in the first place? Was it through your education? By earning a degree of some kind? No, of course not. It was by simple faith, faith in Jesus Christ, who then poured his spirit out on simple men, who then went into all the world and simply preached the gospel to everyone they came in contact with by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, I am not against Bible colleges or seminaries. I'm not against going to a good Christian university to get training for ministry or even a degree. But that won't ordain a person for ministry. Graduating Bible college or seminary doesn't make you a pastor, it makes you a graduate. Only the Holy Spirit can anoint and ordain a person for ministry. And by the way, let's not forget that God launched the church at a time when there were no Bible colleges or seminaries. At a time when you didn't have to have a degree before you were considered qualified to be in ministry like many churches today. If you don't have a degree, they won't even give you a second look. You're not qualified to be in ministry. And that's very sad because that's not how the church began. Somewhere along the line, we have gotten to a point where what started in the spirit is now going to be made perfect in the flesh by having a degree. There are churches that put more stock in that sheepskin than in the one who died and, you know, where the, who, whom the Lord calls he what? He equips. When God started the church, he didn't go to the rabbinic schools of Judaism. He appointed and anointed simple fishermen and farmers with the Holy Spirit. And in 30 years, according to Acts 17, verse 6, they turned their world upside down for Christ. So Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis and to Protestant churches today, how did your church start? Was it a work of man or was it a work of the Spirit? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. They knew they received the power of the Spirit by faith. They knew that that was the power that God used in their lives to begin their church and propel their church into a time of ministry that was so powerful, many years later they could still look back and remember the good old days because it was that powerful. I mean, that's always how the Holy Spirit works. Through simple faith, trusting in God, you know, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not equipped. But Lord, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But it's always a work of the Holy Spirit if it's going to be a work of God. That's why, again, the Lord says in verse 3, remember how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. You got to get back to your roots. J. Vernon McGee said, my friend, the church today needs the Spirit of God working in it. We think we need methods, and we have all kinds of Band-Aid courses for believers in which you put on a little Band-Aid and it will solve all your problems. What we really need to do is to get to the person of Christ whom only the Spirit can make real and living to us. This is the thing Protestantism needs today, end quote. And yet I know a well-known, I don't know personally, I know a well-known pastor on the radio. It's not me, I'm not well-known. But I know a well-known pastor who has been on radio for many years. I heard him say a few years ago, that if a man didn't have a degree in theology, if he didn't have a degree, in, a degree in pastoral ministry, he was not qualified to be in ministry. Now that just put a knife in my heart. It's like, come on, man. I'm quoting Biden again. Come on, man. Um, 
I know where he's coming from. Unfortunately, though, it's wrong. It's wrong. I mean, we started out with the Spirit when the church was born, but over the years we moved away from the Spirit uh, to more of an education, and uh, that's the, the, the qualify somebody for ministry. And in the process, I think the church today, for the most part, has educated itself to death. I mean, we have Bible colleges, seminaries, seminars, courses, classes, teaching us theology and philosophy of ministry, instructing us how to live the Christian life, how to do church, how to evangelize the lost. And yet, for the most part, it's all the work of the flesh. And nothing of any consequence is being done for the Lord that is standing the test of time. Now, not everything, of course. There are churches on fire serving the Lord. I'm talking about Protestantism. That's what this letter is focusing on, okay? The mainline Protestant church. A lot of activity, a lot of schooling, a lot of ministry. But, um, you know, there's, there's not much life there. Talking to somebody who said that her sister and brother-in-law, they belong to a uh, liberal church, and they've gone to Africa, but not once did they ever preach the gospel. It was just digging wells for, for water and helping uh, build a school and, and helping them learn how to plant crops and things like that. That's the liberal church. It's got many good works, but it's dead works. There's no life. They put no emphasis on evangelism. It's not important to them. And some people would stop me and say, no, come on, come on. They point to the megachurches as proof in our country that God is doing a great work. Look, as I've said before, let me say it again, not all megachurches are bad. But many of them are big because they've watered down the gospel and have made their church so feelings-oriented and man-centered that the world feels right at home. I have seen megachurches that are obsessed with positivity. Churches that are so seeker-friendly and non-confrontational, they no longer confront the culture. They wouldn't think twice about doing that. They've married the culture. They've married the culture. And what you wind up with is a sanctified social club instead of a life-saving station. You've heard me read this before. Let me read it again. It goes like this. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it now as sort of a club also. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving station, the life-saving motif still, still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. 
So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all those various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. The person who wrote that little story obviously wrote it as an allegory of the church and how that the church started out with a very simple mission, to seek and to save those that were lost. Now that mission was our mission because our leader, Jesus Christ, stated in Luke 19.10 that that was his mission on earth and then commissioned us to go into all the world and do the same to seek and to save those who were lost. This meant he had called his church to be a life-saving station. As the church was founded on the day of Pentecost, that's Acts chapter 2, of course, it consisted of mostly poor but extremely dedicated people who were determined to carry out their mission no matter what the cost. But sadly, over time, So many churches have lost sight of that mission. As God has blessed them and they have prospered, they have built large, beautiful buildings with elegant furniture and decor. Often they contain food courts and coffee shops and so many amenities that Christians can stay at church for hours on end fellowshipping and enjoying each other's company to the point where now the church has become a subculture, separate from the culture, the culture that we would we were commanded to go into and preach the good news and save souls. But now the church has become um, a place where people like to gather and socialize. And I'm not putting, uh, I'm not putting all that down. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a coffee shop in your church or uh, it's wrong to have a nice church building. I'm just saying for some folks, the church has become now a, um, a social outlet, all right? That's the tragedy for me. Uh, more and more Christians see their church as merely a social outlet, a form of entertainment, and not as a part of a spiritual search and rescue team going out into the shipwreck world seeking and saving the lost. It's the very thing that Paul the Apostle prophesied would characterize the church in the last days, a preoccupation with self and selfish desires and pursuits to the, to the exclusion of our mission. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 4. Of course, you remember this. I'll read it out of the NLT 2nd edition, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. Paul said, For the t- a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, and the ideas from God's Word, of course. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. We're in those days. We're in those days. And uh, again, America is not lacking for churches. We're like Athens. When Paul went there and said at one point, uh, it says that his spirit was grieved because he saw a city that was wholly given over to idolatry. A lot of churches are have been given over to idolatry in many ways. We talked a little bit about some of that the last couple weeks. Uh, But because we have a lot of churches in America, or there are those that believe 
that God is moving. God is working. Look at all the mega churches. I just don't see it that way. I just don't see it that way. And I know some people would say, well, how do you know that? You know, they get aggravated if you, you know, uh, kind of put down this idea they have that we're in a great time of revival. I don't see that. But they say, how do you know that? Well, that's a decent question. Let me just ask you these questions. Is our culture becoming more and more godly or more and more corrupt? Is it becoming lighter and lighter, in other words, embracing more and more of God's truth, or is it becoming darker and darker, in other words, embracing more and more of Satan's lies? Look, the church is salt and light. The church is salt and light. If we were really doing our jobs, not that I'm not saying that no church is or no Christian is. I'm talking now about Protestantism in general, but the Church of Jesus Christ, you know, is, is in that as well, to some extent, the evangelical church. But the church, Jesus said, is salt and light. If we were really doing our job, society should be getting brighter in the sense of becoming more moral, truthful, and godly. It should be getting more and more pure and less and less corrupt. Is, is that the case? Is that the case? I've been to, to a few mega churches where, and I think this is part of the problem, Somewhere along the line, churches have decided that it's not good to be a church. That we should try to be every, anything but a church. So I've been to mega churches that were trying so hard not to come across as a church, you didn't even know you were in church. If somebody would have picked you up, blindfolded you, walked you to the building without saying a word, plopped you down, you would not know you were in a church. A few years ago, my mom, before she passed, she'd come out for Thanksgiving and stay a couple weeks. And we'd go around and we'd do things and we'd have a nice time together. Well, I'd take a couple weeks off and, um, and so I wanted to show her a couple of churches in the area in particular because I wanted to know what was going on. And so I took her to one well-known church here in the suburbs on a Sunday morning. And uh, at first I wasn't sure if I was in the right service. You walk in, there's like secular music playing, and I'm thinking, okay, and you know, we sat down, and they did get it, they did play a couple secular songs, and then some Christian songs, you know, and uh, then the uh, service started, okay, and um, they brought out a couple of these uh, round tables you see at a coffee shop, and the pastor and some other guests sat down, and they were like at Starbucks having a cup of coffee and talking about something and then the past shifted it was like you know everything was kept shifting okay like like the people were were not capable of listening to a 30 or 40 minute message so you know like uh like uh, you know <laughs> i grew up with romper room or sesame street right uh, you know the the model there is you have to keep the kids attention right so you got to keep switching boom boom you know it's and, and, and so now they, they bring out this pastor and, uh, with, the, with the round tables, and he was talking like he's at a coffee shop. Then they, he did a message. It was terrible. I'm not just being unkind. Uh, he read from Mary's Magnificat. This was around Christmas time. You know, Luke chapter 1, you know, and Mary's Magnificat. You can read it for yourself. And, uh, you know, and um, uh, how that the Lord lifts up kingdoms and kings and brings them down and so on. And from that... He said Mary was a revolutionary. We all think she's mild-mannered and so, you know, look, look at her words. She's talking about kingdoms rising and falling. She's a revolutionary. I'm like, get me out of here. So we left eventually. And wow. Well, the next week, and I will tell you this church. So the next week we went downtown, again, Christmas time. We went to Moody Bible Church. Now, there was a church that was celebrating being a church. They had the choir. They, they had wonderful things going on and, 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 and a, a program they were going to be doing, a Christmas program that evening. And uh, then Pastor Lutzer came out and gave a wonderful message from the Word, a uh, Christmas message right out of the Word. And I left there thinking, here's the difference between the mindsets today. 
Some churches think they have to run from who they are to reach people for Christ. And so they won't, they, you, you won't find a cross, you won't find anything in a church like that that indicates you're in a church. Whereas other churches say, we want to celebrate being the church of Jesus Christ. Because if people come in here, we're assuming they want to know God. They want to draw close to God. That's why they've sought out a church. And I'm gonna, we're going to, what, run from that? And, and make them think that they're not in a church? Look, let me just say this to you. Becoming like the culture to reach the culture is a flawed and failed philosophy. Maybe not quite a fool's errand, but it's close. It's close. As we have said in the past, the seeker-friendly model for, for evangelism, evangelism is flawed because it basically incorporates the philosophy of being like the world to reach the world. And that runs contrary to what the Lord said to his people when he said, come out of her and be separate. Touch not what is unclean. I mean, the church today, some churches have mixed into their churches secular music, and you know how the lyrics of some secular songs are. It's definitely not sanctified. I'm not saying they use the raunchiest stuff out there. But stuff I would never play in church. I wouldn't even listen to outside of church. There's a lot of things that churches have embraced to try to reach people for Christ. You've got to be like the culture to reach the culture. Well, I have a problem with that. Okay. Guys, the difference between the seeker-friendly philosophy of ministry and then the scriptural model for ministry is the difference between what some have called the church as a field model and then the church as a force model. Let me sketch it out quickly. What is the church as a field model that many churches have adopted? It's the seeker-friendly model, where the church becomes the field. That becomes where the evangelism takes place. And everything is designed to get people to bring their friends and family into the church because that's where the evangelism takes place. And we'll take it from there, the professionals say. We're professional. We are the paid, you know, ministers, quote-unquote, the ministers. So you just bring them in. This is where they're gonna, we're going to evangelize. This is the field. And we'll take it from here. The other model is the church as a force model. That's the one I believe in. And that's where people come into church, and the service is not geared to the unbeliever, like in the seeker-friendly model. That It's all geared to the unbeliever. But the church as a force model is people come in, and we teach them the Word of God. Now, we always work in the gospel, because there's always going to be some people there that aren't saved. I'm not saying we never evangelize in the church. I'm just saying that's not the, the focus. The focus, Ephesians 4, to equip the saints by teaching them the word of God, letting them go out into the world as a force, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's where the evangelism takes place, in the world. And I believe that's one of the reasons that churches are failing is because they've adopted that church as a field model, and they're not teaching the saints. They're not feeding the saints. People, Christians that come to church, and many of them will only come to Sunday service. You know that. When they do come, they're just hearing the gospel week after week because it's all designed to touch unbelievers and save them. So the church stays weak and impotent. And they get the mindset that I, I'm not qualified to share the gospel with unbelievers. i got to bring them to church where my pastors will share with them. I think it's a real problem today. Revelation 3, at the end of verse 3, it says, Therefore, if um, you will not watch, Jesus said, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Jesus is here borrowing a page from their city's history and how it fell twice at night. Once in 549 B.C. and again in 218 B.C which, as we said when we opened with this uh, letter a few weeks ago when we, we first started, uh, that led to a saying that began to go around in that city that Sardis was a city that was taken as a thief in the night. 
And Jesus is picking up on this. Now look, Jesus never comes to his true church as a thief. He never comes to his true church as a thief. He comes as a bridegroom. He only comes to the dead apostate church as a thief. And that's who he's addressing in the church of Sardis, those who are spiritually dead, religious unbelievers, not the few who were spiritually alive, born again. Uh, I, I turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. Let me show you why I believe this. Again, Jesus never comes for his true church as a thief. He comes as the bridegroom. But he does come to the dead apostate church as a thief. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, and be sensitive to the shift in pronouns in just a minute, okay? Paul says, but concerning the times... And the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, this is a time of judgment, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, notice, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him and the ideas in his kingdom. Now, I do think that last uh, word for sleep there in verse 10 is uh, to be taken as um, not unbelievers who are asleep because they're dead in trespasses and sins, but a believer who was sleeping in Christ who has died and is going to be awakened, okay? So, uh, you know, who died for us, that whether we wake, whether we're, we're alive when he comes to the rapture, or we sleep, whether we have died in Christ, uh, we're all going to be taken to be with him and uh, live with him in his kingdom. Now, let me just say this. Paul does talk about uh, unbelievers and believers. He likens uh, unbelievers, those who live in darkness, they sleep. Uh, they get drunk, they carry on in certain ways because they're of the darkness, they're unsaved. But we as Christians, we should be living a different way. That doesn't mean we can't fall asleep in the light, though. Remember what Paul said in Romans 13, verse, uh, verse 11 and 12, and do this, knowing the time that it is now high time to awaken out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night, night is far spent, night of man's rebellion. The day is at hand, the day of Christ's return for a new kingdom. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So it's not that Christians can't fall asleep in the light. We can. And that's why you have to, you know, make sure you keep moving forward. Make sure you keep walking with Jesus. Because if you stay active, you're never going to be so comfortable you're going to fall asleep. But there are Christians who are sleeping in the light. They're saved, uh, but they're not active right now for the Lord. They're not doing anything, all right? And uh, one author put it this way, said, and I quote, This is where mainline denominationalism increasingly finds itself. Proponents of such do not believe in a rapture or even a millennium. They teach that the promises of the kingdom, the sayings of Isaiah, the teachings of Revelation are simply allegor uh, allegorical. Don't look for the rapture, they say, and don't look for a real kingdom established on earth. Thus, they will be totally caught off guard by Jesus' return, end quote. Because they're not saved, is the idea. That really is the idea of, of what Jesus is saying to Sardis, the church there. There are many Christians who are Christians in name only. That's what he nails them on. 
You, I know that you have a name, but you are dead. There's a lot of Christians who are Christians in name only. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, there is coming a time when many are going to stand before me and are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because they were church going. They knew him as Lord, his, the title. They had not made him their Lord. They weren't saved. You can read the rest of that chapter, verses 21 through 28 of Matthew 7. Uh, it shows that very clearly. Remember what Paul said to Titus. He said in Titus 1.16, Many have a form of godliness, but by their lives they deny knowing God. Well, that brings us to the call or the promise. Verse 4. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Someone has said of the church of Sardis, and I'm quoting him, the church had become a beautiful burial garment covering over a lot of defilement and decay. Herodotus, the historian, said, the church of Sardis eventually became lax and loose in its moral standards and open to licentiousness. For the most part, there were still some who were faithful. We see this in Israel. You know, in Israel, it was never the nation as a whole that was faithful to God. It was always and only a remnant that remained true to him. You remember out of 1 Kings 19, when Elijah goes up against um, the, the, the false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, right? And has a big showdown and winds up, you know, God proving himself to be, you know, almighty God, the true and living God. And uh, uh, Elijah has uh, them take these false prophets down to the river and, and kill them. Well, Jezebel was the queen, and she was furious. They were her prophets and, and all. And so, you know, she, she says, you know, may the Lord do so to me and more if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of theirs. So Elijah takes off. He runs all the way down, you know, to the desert, hides in a cave. You remember the story. But at one point, God appears to him, and the, and the man is discouraged, all right? He's, he's broken. He said, Lord... I'm the only one left in all of Israel who loves you. Everyone's turned. Everyone, you, know, you ever feel that way? You know, Lord, everyone's a mess spiritually. It's, it's just me and you now, Lord. And the Lord says, well, take, take it easy. I've got 7,000 that haven't kissed the image or bent the knee in worship to Baal. Now, 7,000 out of a nation of three million. That's not a lot. They were truly a faithful remnant. Here Jesus tells this church, you have a few, and only a few, who are genuinely saved in Sardis. But listen, a few can act as seed to begin a new work of God to grow. But we have to understand this. Some people are calling for the greatest revival the world has ever seen is going to happen before Jesus returns. And Jesus in Luke 12, 32 called his church a little flock. The word for little in Greek is micron. We get a word micro from that word, something very small. Remember the parable of the mustard seed? which is the smallest of seeds. But when so the kingdom of heaven is like, okay, like a mustard seed, smallest of seeds. But when it's planted, it grows into a great tree and all the birds of the air come lodging in its branches. Now, some people interpret that to mean, see, the church is going to start small and wind up being massive, you know, and, and, and a refuge for all the people of the world who are hungry and tired and broken and homeless. If you study parables, birds aren't good. Birds aren't good. Remember, they're the ones that eat the seed, the word, when it's sown, okay? Birds aren't good. And by the way, mustard seeds don't grow into large trees. They grow into bushes that maybe get eight foot high, 
So in my mind, what Jesus is saying through that parable is the church is going to start out small and pure. But somewhere along the line, it's going to grow. It's going to become a monstrosity, something that God never created it to be. To the point where every evil doctrine is going to wind up lodging in its branches. That's the apostate church, okay? It does include Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. But that's what we are looking, well, I say looking forward to. That's what's coming. I don't believe that right before Jesus comes back, there's going to be the greatest revival the church has ever seen. I hope so. I hope so, but I don't really see that from Scripture. I see apostasy everywhere. I see the church being what God never intended it to be. You can read Revelation 17. Not now. When John, a first century man, leader of the church, an apostle, is taken in the spirit to the end before Jesus returns, he sees the church as a woman riding a beast. And she's decked out in jewels. And she's drinking from a golden goblet. What is she drinking? The blood of the saints. And John is horrified. The Greek is very strong. He's horrified at what he What happened to the church? This is not the church I left when I was taken in the spirit to the future. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is, you know, and we have to keep this in mind. That as we approach the Lord's return, the apostasy is going to become more and more pronounced. You're going to have more and more churches becoming apostate churches and pastors who are really going to be wolves in sheep's clothing leading these churches. And because of it, you're going to have a lot of people in this country, I'm just going to use America now, who think that God's doing a great work. I've had seen surveys that say 80% of people in America consider themselves Christians. Now think about that for a minute. Do you think that 80% of the people you bump into, live next to, work with are really born-again Christians? Not in your life. I'm thinking it's more like 10, 12%, maybe 15% of all the people that profess to be Christians in America. That's the faithful remnant. Those are the born-again Christians. Protestantism today has its saints who truly are born again and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. These are folks who love the word, love the Lord, faithful to Jesus. They are the faithful remnant of Sardis. It's Protestantism. The name Sardis, are you ready, means every one of these names is important. The name Sardis means escaping ones. Escaping ones. Ones that originally escaped from the Roman Catholic Church and all of its corruption and false doctrine. They didn't run far enough. They didn't escape far enough. As we said last week, Jesus said to this church, I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. He started out well, started to make a break, but they still clung to a lot of the stuff that was unpleasing to God, even idolatrous. And so even in the Protestant church, the escaping ones, many never did escape completely. Only those who are genuine, in other words, the faithful remnant, will escape the judgment of God that's coming on this Christ-rejecting world, or what the Bible calls the wrath to come. But I want you to understand that over the years there have been a good number of godly Roman Catholics and Protestants. One historian commented, and I quote, Protestantism has produced some great men, and I will mention some, although I'm going to leave out a great many. I think of the Reformation leaders, Martin Luther and John Calvin. They stand out, head and shoulders above all the others. Of course, there was John Knox, the great man of God who did so much for Scotland. Later on, there was John Bunyan, the great Baptist who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which tells us his own life and how God marvelously saved him. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church. 
God marvelously saved that man and used him in such a way that he is given credit by historians for saving England from the revolution that destroyed France and prevented it from ever becoming a first-rate nation again. Wesley has been called the greatest Englishman of all. He certainly did more for that country than uh, any other Englishman has ever, uh, who has ever lived. Then there was a man named John Moffat, the Scotchman who went to Africa, and David Livingston, uh, who uh, first opened up the continent, the, that continent, Africa. William Carey went to India and later was followed by a sickly young man by the name of Henry Martin. Finally, I always like to include Titus Cohen, who led the greatest revival since Pentecost out in the Hawaiian Islands. Protestantism has had some names who didn't defile themselves and were true to the word of God. There are quite a few such men living today, but I wouldn't dare to begin to name them because of the fact I would be apt to leave some out who ought to be included. Protestantism has certainly produced some great men of God. Romanism did the same thing even during the Dark Ages. But that does not mean to commend the system. The system of Romanism, Roman Catholicism, and the system of Protestantism, as they are revealed in the great denominations which have departed from the faith, to me are the organizations which will eventually bring in the apostate church because they have departed from the great tenets and doctrines of the Christian faith, end quote. You know, the Calvary Chapel movement, I think, needs to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap Sardis fell into. You know, that we have a lot of pride in our name, our heritage. And we sit around all day talking about the good old days when our movement, the Jesus movement, was birthed during the 60s using a man by the name of Chuck Smith. Chuck said, if when I die, if you start naming your churches after me, if you start calling me, calling yourselves Smithians, I'm going to come back and haunt you. <laughs> Chuck never wanted anything named after himself. He realized he was just a servant, an instrument in the hands of God. But you know how that goes. You have followers then that want to make the man a celebrity, put him on a pedestal, call their churches, you know, are, are proud of the name Calvary Chapel. Yeah, we have a name, but would Jesus say to us, you're dead? No, I don't believe so. I definitely think the movement could use revival. But I don't think we're dead where we need to be regenerated, where people populate Calvary chapels who are just dead. That Calvary Chapel is a dead church, or dead church, a dead movement. I don't believe that at all. I still think God is using the Calvary Chapel movement. I think that he is, uh, he's made adjustments. I think he's cleaned some house. I think he's whittled it down to that faithful remnant. Now he might use that remnant to go out and start another great move of God in these last days. I don't know. We need to be careful, though, that we don't do what Sardis did, what the Protestant churches have done where we live in the past, talk about the good old days constantly, but really not looking for God to do anything new in our churches today. One of, the Calvary, one of our Calvary Chapel pastors, who was a part of the Jesus movement in those days, said this, and I quote, Every generation needs its own reformation, its own renewal, its own revival. It's not enough for a generation to hear about how it was in their parents' day. The Jesus movement in the 60s was wonderful. But the days to come are going to be grander still because God's heart is to go from glory to greater glory whenever we get out, uh, whenever we get out of the way and don't fall prey to the Sardis syndrome, end quote. All right, verse 5. Jesus said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And of course, guys, these are true believers. He's talking about that will someday be clothed with the white robes of Christ's righteousness, as opposed to the filthy rags of religious self-righteousness. You can read about that in Isaiah 64, verse 6, how that some will stand before God in the filthy rags of self-righteousness, doing works that they believe will, will earn them salvation. And uh, the Hebrew is pretty graphic. It doesn't just say filthy rags. It's used menstrual cloths. 
and when a woman was in her monthly period, she was considered unclean. A, a flow of blood made her unclean. And God is saying, you can clothe yourself in one or two garments. You can believe in my son, and you will be clothed with his righteous white robes of well, righteousness, salvation. Or you can try to get to heaven on your own and wind up being clothed in the filthy rags of self-righteousness. Remember how Jesus drove this home with the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22? Where he said, a king, the kingdom of heaven is like a king that prepared a marriage feast for a wedding feast for his son. And at one point told the servants to go and, and gather up the guests that were invited because all is now ready for the, the wedding feast. But they made light out of it, these folks that were invited, and uh, I'm too busy, I just bought some property, and i got to tend to it, whatever. And so the servants came back and said, King, they don't want, King, they don't want to come. They're, they're, they've got too much going on. He said, well, go back and tell them. The time has come for the wedding feast for my son, of my son. And so they went on again. This time some of these people that were invited, uh, uh, you know, messed up some of these servants, beat them up. Some of them were even killed. So when the king heard about that, he was furious, sent his armies to destroy their cities, these wicked people as well. And then he told his servants, look, go out into the highways and byways and gather all who will come and just invite anyone who will come. And the wedding hall was filled and the king went out to view his guests and he saw there a man who was not wearing a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how is it that you have come here without a proper wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said, bind him hand and foot, cast him out into the outer darkness. Now you read that and go, well, wait a minute. This guy was walking him down the street, maybe. Minding his own business. Come on to the wedding feast. Oh, okay. And now the king's going to hold it against him because he didn't have the proper wedding garment on? Now you have to understand, in that culture, the king always provided his guests with the wedding garment. It wasn't that this man didn't have a wedding garment to put on. He refused. And Jesus' point is, the only way you're going to be allowed to remain at the wedding feast of the Lamb and then enter into his kingdom as if you are clothed with the king's royal robes of righteousness because you believe in Jesus Christ. Anyone who tries to get into heaven, into God's kingdom, without the blood of Christ covering them, they'll be cast into the outer darkness. Verse 5 again. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Look, the book of life is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation, so I'm going to ask you to be patient. We will get into it uh, in all that it is, is talking about um, down the road, okay? We don't have enough time tonight. I want to do it justice, so... Keep that in mind. Book of life. What is it? Uh, who's written in it? And we'll talk about that. Verse 6. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church of Sardis. To the churches. We need to be careful that we don't look at the letters to Thyatira and Sardis and say to ourselves, well, those letters are addressed to the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Not to me. So I can just dismiss it okay, is not pertaining to me at all. Remember that all seven churches got all seven letters. There's a little of each, there is a little of each, um, there's a little of each of these letters in all of us who are Christians. And we need to use them as a mirror to look into from time to time to see, you know, are we guilty of these things, Okay. I heard a story a while back of a young pastor who um, was hired to pastor a church in an area somewhere. I think it was a more of a rural area. Anyways, it was a dead church. He knew it was a dead church, but he thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll do my best to kind of you know, love them and, and feed them, and, 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 you know, and, and maybe we can get some life going. Well, after about a year or so of just doing that very thing, uh, the church was still dead. Uh, the folks in that church didn't really want any new life. They were comfortable, right? So one morning, this young pastor gets up in front of the congregation and says, you know what, this church is dead. And it's about time we gave it a proper burial. 
So come back at 2 o'clock this afternoon. We're going to give this church a proper burial. I want you all to be here. Well, now everyone's buzzing. What's this young pastor going to do? And the word goes out, not just to the, all the members of the church, some that were not there, but to the whole community. The, 2 o'clock, the whole community shows up to see what this young pastor's got in mind. So the people file into the church, and there is an open casket. And the pastor said, this church is dead, and it's about time every one of you came and paid your last respects. So form a line and come on up. As they came up to the casket, looked inside this clever young pastor, I placed a mirror there. They looked inside, they saw themselves. I don't know if that convicted any of them. I don't know if they got right with God. But I know that Jesus Christ is using these letters as a mirror that we need to look into. Am I like Ephesus? Have I lost my first love? Am I like Sardis? I have a name. I've been calling myself a Christian for a long time, but I'm, nothing's going on for the Lord in my life. And so on, right? Look, let me just end by saying this. Sardis was a dead church. And of course, we don't want... They had a little life. Hopefully, they went ahead and got a revival going somehow. But let me just say this. We don't want to become dead Christians. I'm not saying when I say a dead Christian, you lose your salvation. I'm just saying kind of dead in your walk, okay? Um, we don't want our church to become dead. So what do we do? Well, there's, a, there's just four things I'll share with you quickly. All healthy living organisms share several things in common. First of all, all contain healthy cells. All healthy organisms are made up of healthy cells. A church is made up of healthy cell groups. If you're not a member of a cell group, can I encourage you to be part of one? Because you can't isolate yourself from the body. Any time a person's walk has begun to dry up and become kind of dead, it's always because they've isolated themselves from the body. That's always the way it works. The devil works on you, peels you away from the church, isolates you from the body, and in that condition you start to dry up and die spiritually. It's very important that we you can't take a, one cell out of a body, stick it over on the side somewhere, and expect it's going to flourish. It's going to wither and die. We need each other. We are a body, the body of Christ. That's why the Lord says, don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. We need each other. Every healthy organism contains healthy cells. Number two, every healthy organism eats. Are you eating? Are you feeding on the Word of God? I mean, good heavens, if many Christians fed their physical man the way they feed their spiritual man, they would have been dead a long time ago. I know when the physical man gets hungry, he, let it, he lets us know. The stomach is growling, you feel, you know, uh, miserable, you know, you're, you're, you just feel it. With the spiritual man, it's not so pronounced or obvious. But there are telltale signs. You start, you know, using the old language you used to use. You start watching some of the old TV programs you used to watch and got away from. Some of the old bad habits you have broken free of are starting to come back. Are you eating? A healthy organism eats. Number three, they grow. A healthy organism grows. Are you growing in your walk with the Lord? Well, sure, I am. I've, I've been a Christian 25 years. Well, you sure you haven't been a Christian one year 25 times? I mean, I've met Christians who have been Christians for 20, 30 years. Honestly, a few, uh, Hebrews 5, they're still needing the milk and can't articulate the faith. They can't share their faith. They're like babes. It's because they've not grown, they're not feeding on the word, and therefore they're not growing. Are you growing? You be honest, right? This is not to condemn, it's just a challenge. Are you growing? Well, I don't know. What are you doing less for the Lord now than you used to do? Are you more carnal now than you used to be? Because if so, you're going backward. I understand that, repent, and let's go forward again. And then finally, a healthy organism reproduces. Reproduces. One of our pastors who's an evangelist at a couple of conferences I was at where he was speaking, 
He said, you have to share your faith, Christians. If you don't evangelize, you're going to fossilize. You have to share your faith. Well, I'm scared. Who isn't? For some, it comes easier than others. But pray for opportunities. And well, I don't know all that much. I'm afraid I, they're going to ask me questions I don't know the answers to. Okay, tell them your testimony. You have to be a theologian to know you, share your testimony. Just tell them what God's done in your life. That should be enough to get many of them to listen to what you have to say. So, God willing, we will continue on next time with the letter to Philadelphia, an incredible church. Let's uh, read ahead, and then we'll study it together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace. We thank you, Lord, for saving us out of a dark and depraved world and brought us, bringing us into your marvelous light. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. And in these last days, give us great grace to finish our race strong. And here you say, well done, good and faithful servants. So, Lord, thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.